Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 8th, 2021, and on this show, one of the themes that we've been trying to figure out are all the injustices of the world, trying to figure out paths forward. We, we talk a lot about racism and one kind of crime or another. One of the issues that I've been drawn to, which seems to be something that's increasingly on everybody's mind, is the crime against the indigenous peoples of the colonial, of the colonized world, particularly of North America. Um, recently, uh, we had uh, Margaret Jacobs on our show, uh, the historian um, of uh, from from Nebraska. I'm going to put um, her slide up uh, if it's working. I'm not sure if it's actually working. Uh, Margaret Jacobs, who um, has written a, a wonderful book about the troubled history of injustice to indigenous people uh, to indigenous people in North America but Margaret's also hopeful uh, her book after 100 uh, winters in search of reconciliation on America's stolen lands speaks of ways in which some Americans have begun particularly in Nebraska to give the land back to the indigenous peoples who had the land seized from them by colonialists I've always been struck with the fact that the histories when it comes to indigenous peoples it's very different in the united states and canada and i'm thrilled today that we have one of canada's uh leading uh thinkers and writers on the experience of indigenous peoples in canada tanya talaga she's the author of two acclaimed books uh, seven fallen feathers and all our relations uh finding the path forward. So she, like us, is focusing on finding a path forward. And I'm thrilled that she's uh, joining us. Uh, Tanya, uh, welcome. Um, in your sense, is there a big difference in terms of the way in which Canadians and Americans, or people from the United States of America, have tried to address this terrible crime against indigenous peoples in the history of colonialism? Mm. Uh, yes, uh, and bonjour to everyone. It's nice to, to be on the show. I appreciate it very much. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, there is, uh, well, I, I like to go back. I like to go back a little bit. I like to go back to, um, um, to, contact. And, you know, um, 500 years ago, some odd years ago, this continent of North America, or as we call it, Turtle Island, was a continent founded on violence. This continent was founded um, by settlers who um, who came here, explore, explorers who came here looking for a new world, and um, reached these shores and thought that there was no society, that the land was free, terra nullis, land belonging to no one, um, because we were different. We were different from what was happening, the new world, quote unquote, in Europe, right? The parliamentary system, Magna Carta, um, all of your laws um, that were written down. We had 
different societies here in North America, we had indigenous societies that had been here for tens of thousands of years. We like to say that we've always been here. And what happened was um, you had, of course, two different governments form. You had the U.S. and Canada, and both ex have actually um, both have engaged in extermination and assimilation policies towards Indigenous people in order to clear the land so the land could be bought and sold and all of the resources and everything else that goes along with it be taken. And so in the U.S. you have the policies of uh, the former President Andrew Jackson, um, who actually did have extermination policies including um, the removal of the Cherokee, um, the Cherokee Trail of Tears, almost 4,000 dead as a result of moving everyone off of their land in order to make way for others. And we also have in Canada something called the Indian Act, a piece of racist legislation that has actually been on our books since 1876. And that legislation made it law to send your children to residential schools. So 150,000 of our children from the mid-1800s to 1996 were sent to these places where your language, everything you know, um, who you are was beaten, starved out of you. And the goal of these schools was assimilation. The United States also had schools that were very similar and they were called boarding schools. They were run by Christian churches and um, funded by federal governments. So we have very similar histories in a way. And even now things are still quite similar. Um, you know, I could go on and on about treaties and how treaties formed America and Canada, but we also know that both governments have broken every single treaty that they've ever signed. Tanya, though, um, it seems to me, and again, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, this is certainly not an area that I'm much of an expert on, that the Canadians have done made more of an effort, perhaps because of their history, perhaps because of the numbers of their population or their system or their culture, to at least in a contemporary way, recognize the legitimacy um, of indigenous peoples. Um, you know, in a little bit of research uh, for this show, I mean, you have First Nations, you've written about this, and I want to get to your books um, in a first mm -hmm. minute, uh, in, in a minute, uh, the First Nations and the indigenous peoples of Canada. Is it fair to say that the Canadians have over the last 20 or 30 years began to recognize their crimes and their responsibility in trying to uh, find a path forward? Yes, you could say that in a, in a way. Um, we are more, quote unquote, woke to what has happened here. Um, one example of that would be the fact that we have held a national inquiry into murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls which is something that um, that we have been asking for for decades and decades. And that inquiry wrapped up two years ago and it went all across the country, interviewed thousands of families and survivors, um, knowledge keepers to come to calls to justice. 
um, which look at how we can stop what's happening with our women. And if you look south of the border to the United States, um, the Secretary of the Interior, Deb Haaland, has just started to go that route. And, you know, um, she has been a force to try and get some of the states to start um, recording numbers of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. Um, but there's still no national acknowledgement or national inquiry. And, you know, the United States definitely needs to go down that path. And also, too, when you look at the fact that we've had um, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in Canada, it was led by former Senator Murray Sinclair, an Anishinaabe judge. And that inquiry, again, spoke to 6,000 survivors of the residential school system to come up with 94 calls to action or 94 ways forward, if you will, and how we could start to mend this relationship between us here in this country. And we have not seen that in the States. We haven't seen any of those acknowledgements. Um, they're slower to come. Uh, Tanya, on another show, uh, I've uh, done an interview with Adrian Clarkson, who was your former uh, uh, Director General. Uh, Governor General. Governor General, uh, yeah. Right, mm -hmm. essentially uh, the Canadian monarch, uh, uh, Asian-American or Asian-Canadian woman. Um, would it be fair to say that the the more successful effort for Canada to come to terms with its past is in part caused by the fact that there's been more diversity in government? Hmm. I would say um, that might be a little bit true, but not not wholly. Um, they might that might have played a tiny part, but I would argue that the pushing of Indigenous leadership, the pushing of people, um, we've had something called the Idle No More movement here in Canada, which um, came about uh, during um, all of these things, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and uh, uh, growing awareness um, on social media. Our youth taking to Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and um, you know, starting to connect with people because this is a very vast place. And as you noted, First Nations in Canada, there are 634 just First Nations, which are separate from Métis people and Inuit. Métis do not have land rights uh, for the most part. Métis are from a, um, a certain um, uh, settlement along the Red River in uh, in Winnipeg, um, everyone can draw their lineage back to the marriages of fur traders and indigenous peoples. And then, of course, we have Inuit, which is an entirely different cultural group, all north of north of Canada, on top of Canada, essentially Nunavut. So, you know, it's it's a very very diverse place and. We have so many incredible leaders. We have authors, we have speakers, we have musicians, and all of our voices have been raising for quite a long time. And I think that more so has led to what we see now. Uh, Tanya, as I said in the introduction, you are one of the, the leading voices in this attempt to figure out a way forward and to reconcile your culture your peoples with the past, with what's happened. Uh, you're the author of All Our Relations and Seven Fallen Feathers, as well as a new movie. Um, 
spirit, spirit soul. Uh, tell me a little bit about your history. You have a very interesting history, uh, where you mm. were born uh, and why you wrote these books. Mm. Well, I was um, born here in Toronto, where I'm speaking to you from right now. Um, but uh, my mother is from the traditional territory of Fort William First Nation. And this is a First Nation on the shores of Lake Superior, one of the five Great Lakes, the largest of the Great Lakes, and actually the largest freshwater lake in the world. And um, my mom grew up on the traditional territory there. She grew up in the bush um, without uh, running water. And she was raised by her grandparents, residential school survivors. And she was raised very much to think that um, everything about her was shameful. Everything about her was dirty because she was a quote unquote Indian and that, um, and that she was not worth anything. And my mother, um, her th three brothers were taken away by uh, child welfare something in Canada that we have, and it's called the 60s scoop. Because when all of the residential schools started to close around Canada, child welfare authorities stepped in and scooped up our children and adopted them out to white families or non-Indigenous families. So three of my mother's brothers experienced that. And uh, I also had a sister, and my sister was also adopted out to a white family in Manitoba. Um, and so that is my mother's side of the family. And my father was Polish. So he was born to a Polish immigrant family in Winnipeg. So that is, is my background. And um, I used to spend summers going up to Northern Ontario. And to give everyone just a bit of context, the city of Toronto is about 2,400 kilometers south of Thunder Bay. So it's a two-day drive just to get to the Thunder Bay area. And um, that is where um, my family, my mother's family has always been. And so I was a journalist at the Toronto Star, which is one of the largest daily newspapers here in Canada. And it was in 2011 that I went up to Thunder Bay to report on a story. I was a political reporter at the time. And I wanted to do a piece on why it is Indigenous peoples do not vote during elections. And I was kind of cheating when I pitched that story to my editor, because I knew that if you are a status Indian in this country, you did not receive the right to vote until 1960. That's astonishing. I mean, that's... That's right. Really not obviously not a, I certainly not I didn't know that. I mean it's astonishing yeah. up until 19 I mean 1960 that's only 50 years 60 years that's ago. That's right. That's right. So that was the story I pitched and I went up to Thunder Bay and I said And Thunder Bay as you say is about 2000 miles north of uh, right. of, of, of well, Toronto which is already fairly north. So it's quite uh it's quite a harsh world Thunder yeah. Bay. I mean in in climatic terms in geographic oh, yeah. terms. It, it climatically absolutely um it's i guess it's um if you look at a map of ontario though you would see um duluth uh minnesota is just right across um the you know the border um so right. there's, a, there's actually a land border right there um but the 
the land up there is is stunning you know it's all granite rock um canadian shield it's all um um, you get into the boreal forest just around there which is actually the lungs of the earth um one of the last carbon storehouses um anywhere in the world uh, after the amazon so it's an incredibly special place um for the planet to be honest I do want to talk actually about the environment, but but let's talk about uh, your first book, um, okay. uh, Seven Fallen Feathers, Racism, Death and Hard Truths in a Northern City, which of course is set in, um, uh, in, uh, in, in Thunder, Thunder Bay. Bay. So tell me mm -hmm. how you went from that story to writing uh, Seven Fallen Feathers. So I sorry, I should have uh, finished... Um, what I went up there to write a story about voting and I sat across from a grand chief and he asked me why I wasn't writing a story about Jordan Wabas. And I, um, I thought maybe I was mumbling cause I was asking questions about the election and he kept talking to me about a missing 15 year old boy, um, a boy from Northern Ontario from Webbequake first nation. And we went back and forward like that for about 10 minutes before I realized I wasn't going to get my questions answered. And I needed to put my manic Toronto journalist self aside and realize who I am and that I was sitting in front of a, of a grand chief and he was trying to tell me something and I wasn't listening. What is a and grand I, chief, Tanya? Okay, so a grand chief is, um, uh, is the leader of, um, in this case, of um, 50 there's 49 Northern First Nations communities. So if you were to imagine in your mind the, a map of Ontario, if you will, you know, most of the people in Ontario live in Toronto in the cities, right? So in the south, but it's a huge province. There's just massive landmass north of Lake Superior. And up there, hardly anyone but First Nations people live. And there are 49 communities up in this particular space. And it's a territory roughly the size of the country of France. And those communities are fly in by little planes um, or accessible only by winter ice road. And so all of those communities have chiefs and the grand chief is a chief that acts for all of the chiefs. So that's a political office um, and they, you know, uh, speak to governments and try to um, make things better, so to speak. That's what a grand chief is. So we had a show, a actually, um, this is an aside um, with uh, NYU professor on uh, on the history of democracy. And he suggests that there's much that uh, the West can learn when I use the word the West, I mean, you know, the United States, mm -hmm. Canada, Western Europe, when it comes to democracy from the indigenous peoples. So is that fair? Is the political structure of the indigenous peoples um, of Northern Canada, are they in a sense democratic? How, how did the grand chief, did he get elected? Was he appointed? He is elected. He is elected actually by the other chiefs um, and the grand that that is a, a territorial um, um, a political appointment. And so that has is something that's sort of come about um, in more recent times, having um, political organizations like that. And the reason why is um, because under the Indian Act, it was um, we were forbade to organize politically. 
um, we couldn't organize politically. We could not go to university. We could not hire lawyers. Um, we couldn't vote. This was all under this piece of legislation that was put in place in 1876. There has been um, amendments to this legislation, but it still exists and still sits there. Um, and that legislation actually still governs the um, every single one of those 634 First Nations. They have band councils and a chief system that is dictated to them through the Indian Act. So the subtitle of Seven Fallen Feathers is Racism, Death and Hard Truths in a Northern City. Um, death seems to be central, though, in the book. Mm. It's about youth suicide. Is that no. fair? Um, it's the opposite. It's about um, murder. It's about how these deaths, none of these deaths actually, there was never a shred of evidence after one inquest, one of the largest inquests ever held in Ontario, and also two in reinvestigations into the deaths of the seven students there's never been a shred of evidence that showed that these children took their own lives. Um, right, right. My, my point is uh, that in formal terms, these are understood as suicides, but you were revealing that they're not. You know what? They were just, um, people didn't care. People thought that what was happening was that our children were getting drunk and drowning in the water. And um, that simply was not the case. There's a quiet racism that runs through Canada that has always been here. It's a racism of a country that has constantly looked away as if the Indigenous peoples is not part of the fabric of the society of Canada. Um, you know, uh, you see the products of residential school and what's happened to us through trauma. We call it intergenerational trauma of our families being ripped apart, our people violently taken off the land and so on and so forth. You see in the prison system, most of the prisons are full of indigenous people, full of black people as well. Um, you see us um, in poverty. You see us um, in a, a different socioeconomic plane than everyone else. Um, these reasons come at us because of the Indian Act and because of colonial policies. Um, and you can see that on both sides of the border, by the way. Um, but I just wanted to get back to one thing that you did say about um, uh, democracy. That's mm. absolutely 100% true. I mean, we were engaging in, you know, I talked to you about the Indian Act and the forming of these, these governments of the chief and band council system, but our own systems of governance um, predate contact. So before anyone was talking about democracy in Europe, we were practicing it in here. For instance, in the Ontario, uh, Southern Ontario area, we have something called the Three Fires Confederacy that was a, um, a coming together of three massive groups of people. And we had our own laws. We had our own um, um, marriages. We had our own cities even. Um, we had our own ways of life and ways of being, and we were essentially erased um, for others coming to settle here. 
And so I agree with the NYU professor. It's this David, by the way, the, the, the name of the professor is David Stasavage, and he has a written really interesting book on democracy, uh, hmm. uh, uh, which, which really locates the origins of our modern democracy very much in, in indigenous hmm. people. So you're on the same page as him. I think you'd find it an interesting book and an interesting Thank interview. you. I will read that. So let's move on, um, Tanya, to your second book. It was um, CBC Massey Lectures, which is a, a huge honor. All Our Relations, Finding the Path Forward. What is the path forward? Um, you've done a remarkable job highlighting the crimes, but there has to be a path mm -hmm. forward. What is it? Well, you know, to be honest with you, we're still searching for it. Um, what I highlight in the book and what I... I came to as being a path forward is actually finding a sense of belonging, of instilling a sense of belonging in our children, in First Nations children, Métis, Inuit, um, but in particular for, for us First Nations people, of a sense of pride, a sense of knowing who you are, where you come from, and what your purpose is in life. Um, Murray Sinclair, who I referred to earlier in this chat, um, a former chair of the TRC, has been an immeasurable help to me and an incredible guide to me. And, you know, he's said, uh, and I've heard him say this publicly as well, that we need to do things for ourselves. You know, we need to instill a confidence and a, um, and a love within ourselves and our children and who we are and that we belong. And we need to realize that we've had systems and governance, our own laws in, in place for thousands of years, and that we know deep in our hearts how to move forward, how to, how to make things better, if you will. But that comes too with equity that comes to as well with the need for governments in on both sides of the border again to understand and to realize that treaties were the laws of the land on both sides of the border and i can speak for in especially in canada under the royal proclamation of 1763 treaty rights are ingrained aboriginal title those are ingrained rights so all of the treaties made are actual law they're not just pieces of paper that you can, you know, you file away and you forget about them. Um, this is actual truth and law. And that is why you see in Canada anyway, um, the courts uh, are full of cases of the Canadian government and the provincial governments and First Nations going at each other, fighting hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars spent every single year on the terms of treaty and trying to bring equity to our people. So when I talk about a path forward, I talk about the fact that we have many communities here that where we don't have drinking water, clean drinking water in North America for our people, or we don't have high schools for them, which was the premise of my first book, Seven Fallen Feathers. The fact is, is that as a child born in North America, access to a public education, access to a high school is a fundamental right. But if you're a First Nations child living in some of our communities, you don't have a high school and you have to leave your home when you're 13 or 14 by yourself. Get on a plane and go and live in a city that often doesn't want you like Thunder Bay.
and where you experience racism, racism that can kill. Um, and so we have a long way to go in Canada when it comes to equity, when it comes to basic human rights for Indigenous peoples. And I would argue you see this exact same thing um, south of the border. Uh, Tanya, we had um, Aviva Chomsky on the show recently talking about climate justice. We also had the journalist Sam Quinones on talking about the uh, the pandemic of fentanyl in the United States. Doesn't I'm not sure if you wrote much about Canada. Are these two crises particularly compounded in the First Nations? Absolutely. When it comes to um, uh, climate change, our communities are on the front lines of climate change. And um, we are, because of the colonial policies that I was talking about, we are the ones who are living in the North. We're living with shortened seasons, winter seasons. So that means uh, we have shorter winter road access to our communities. It means our hunting patterns have changed. We've been noticing this for years. Our elders have been noticing this. Our people have been noticing this, that our hunting seasons have gotten shorter. Um, we have birds in certain areas of the north that never were there before, like the robin. The robin is something that you find usually in um, you know, the mid-central of, of North America, um, but the robin is now appearing in the northern part of Ontario. Um, we have fish that we've never seen before making their way up into northern waters because the water is getting warmer. All of these things are devastating to, to the climate. They're devastating. We're seeing them first. Um, and we've been saying, be careful. We've been saying, stop with the clear cutting, stop with the removing, you know, old growth forests. And we've also been saying partner with us. I mean, First Nations are the custodians of the land from before contact, as I said earlier. And we know how to manage forests. We know when to burn, what sections to burn, when to move off the land. You know, and part of what we're seeing and that's happened in, in California and in parts of, of BC is because of, of clear cutting and because um, uh, of a, the, the forests are not managed properly in conjunction with a warming earth. Um, we've always been on the front of climate change. And listening to our voices, you know, you often hear now science is sort of running after us and trying to get the knowledge of the elders from our communities um, to figure out how that path forward. How do we manage the forests? How do we handle what's mm -hmm. happening with us? Um, and then you asked about the opioid crisis, um, fentanyl. It's an absolute catastrophic crisis to many people. Um, it's awful, really, truly is. And our people are suffering and are dying at higher rates than everyone else due to the drug crisis. And, you know, how do we get out of this? How do we get out of it? I, I really do think that it all goes back to equity and fairness and building people up. So Tanya, you're, um, you're a polemical writer, of course. I mean, you're, you're writing to change things. 
you've recently made a film, A Spirit to Soar. Uh, how, how do you see the film differently from books? Um, as I said, you're the author um, of a couple of uh, highly acclaimed books, All Our, uh, All Our Relations and Seven Fallen Feathers. But recently you've worked on this film, Spirit to Soar. How do, how, how do you see films in contrast with books in terms of changing the world? Mm, I appreciate that question a lot. You know, I think that there's a there's such an important place for journalism in our society. Um, you know, I am at answering your question, believe it or not. Um, I have been a journalist for over 25 years at the Toronto Star first, and now I write a column for the Globe and Mail, which is our national newspaper. And um, on my writing... Uh, and also my film work is, is journalism. Um, film is different. Film is so much more visual. Um, I, it's been actually more difficult personally for me to, to, um, to bring that forward because I'm so used to, as a writer, you know, being by myself in a corner, um, researching and writing and sort of functioning as my own entity um, and living inside my mind. And when you're a filmmaker, you can't do that as much. You have a team of people that rely on you and that you have to organize and, um, and get moving. And then you, you've got it all in piles at the end and you're in the edited suite and try and condense it into this, this film. Um, I think films are incredibly important. I think documentary is incredibly important, just as I think nonfiction uh, books are incredibly important because we are that last stop, right? I mean, we see such an erosion to journalism and to newspapers, for example, all over North America. Yet we're the thinkers. We're the ones that are going out there and sort of doing the, the muckracking, getting to the bottom of the stories, um, spending the time. And we're often the ones that the TV stations rip and read and the radio stations get their ideas from. And so it's so important that film reaches people, and especially in this age where people are not as, um, not as often to read um, and want things visually. Telling a visual story, you can bring characters to life in a certain way that I can't in a book on the same way, um, such as the air or water. You get a sense. I don't know if you got a chance, Andrew, to see Spirit to Soar, but you see. The I saw the uh, I saw the trailer, and, and I'm gonna watch the whole film later today. The the it's beautiful. Um, where my family is from. I mean that that is Mount McKay there. Um, that's in the movie poster that you're just showing right now, and it is an incredible. Like the whole area was cut out by um, uh, the removal of the glaciers as they were moving back. Um, it's incredibly stunning. It's rugged. It's wild. Uh, the air smells like cedar. Um, no, you can't have smell in a film. I think that with enough of the visual sight, you can you get that sense of what it is like there. Well, the film's really important, but so are the books. And 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 Tanya, you've done a remarkable job bringing the history and the injustices of your people to, to the outside world, particularly to Canada, to fellow Canadians, all our relations, and seven, and particularly Seven Fallen uh, Feathers. These are essential reading if you want to understand what's happened. Uh, are there another couple of books that 
you would recommend people look at in terms of the history and the industri- and the injustices against the indigenous peoples of North America? What books in particular have influenced you, have triggered your own career? Hmm. I would read An Inconvenient Indian by Thomas King. Thomas King is an incredible writer. Um, he's... Uh, 78 and he's written a number of incredible books um an inconvenient indian is about the history of turtle island so it is a history of north america from contact it's it's fabulous it's going to change your your mind and your world and he's not a dry writer you know all i have to say that there is um, a commonality of indigenous people and that is humor um thomas king is funny and he's 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 witty he's incredible you'll love the book it's fast reading um i would read lee miracle lee miracle is a wonderful wonderful stolo um author she recently passed away uh, on november 11th actually she was a, a dear friend of mine and she has written actually i have one of her books sitting right here wave it at the camera <laughs> Conversations with Canadians, Lee Miracle. Wow, um, I've never heard of any of these writers, and I'm going oh, to look at oh, these yeah, books. Thomas King, for sure. Lee Miracle, another one. Um, and her book, I Am Woman, on um, being an Indigenous woman. Uh, it's an essential feminist read, and I would urge women to read this book and get to gain an understanding of why it's so important that you listen to, that everyone that lives in North America, listen to the voices of Indigenous writers, especially women, um, because women, we've always had a different part, role in communities. Um, we're life carriers, we're water carriers, um, and we carry the stories often of our communities. I would definitely read um, someone who is uh, a youth, Alicia Elliott, a mind spread out on the ground. She's an incredible um, Haudenosaunee writer. So that means that she is Mohawk and she is from Southern Ontario. And she's written a collection of essays of what it's like to be uh, a young Indigenous person living on this land. Um, so those are three right there. Oh, and I recommend Mary- you got one other? Yes, because this is an American audience. This isn't. This is a fiction book, but uh, Tommy Orange, they're there. Well, Tanya uh, Talaga, all, uh, author of All Our Relations and Seven Fallen Feathers, as well as um, what are you? You're not the director. You you did you write Spirit to Soar? I wrote it. I directed it. I executive produced oh it. I God. was a chief cook and bottle washer. <laughs> well, we need to do. Uh, I'm sure you're working on some some new stuff. Uh, it's a real honor to Tanya to have you on the show, and you're talking about one of the most important issues that most of us, including myself, don't understand. So, uh, congratulations. Keep up the great work, and I'd love to have you back on the show talking about future projects and many of the other issues which remain unresolved. So uh, Tanya Talaga, good luck, keep well, and we'll talk again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. I appreciate this conversation very much. Bama P. Chimigwich. Take care.